You're listening to Startups for Good, where we explore high growth and high values ventures. I am your host, Miles Lassiter, co-founder and CEO of Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. Listen to our podcast to hear stories of entrepreneurs. Listen to be inspired to be a founder or to work for a startup. Listen to be part of a community that believes startups can be a force for good. Today's guest is Adam Jackson of Braintrust. Braintrust is the largest and fastest growing Web3 talent network that matches enterprises with the highly skilled technical and design talent they need. Braintrust has allowed talent to earn over $130 million since inception. That's dollars. Uh, prior to founding Braintrust, Adam co-founded Doctor on Demand, the popular video telemedicine provider with daytime talk show personality Dr. Phil. Other notable ventures include DriverSide, a marketplace that connects car owners with mechanics, which was acquired by Advanced Auto Parts in September 2011, and Market Square, the first online local shopping destination on the internet, which was acquired by Intuit in 2006. Adam is a passionate angel investor with over 120 companies, wow, including long-term stock exchange, Superhuman, Filecoin, and others. In our conversation, we talk a lot about marketplace dynamics in Web 2 and Web 3, how he's taken his learnings from growing his marketplace businesses before into a new world, aligning incentives in the Web 3 world. We talk about compliance risks, we talk about management challenges, and we talk about advice that he has for founders on how to become a better storyteller. So please stay tuned. Adam, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Miles. It's a pleasure. So explain to me what it means to run a decentralized talent marketplace. (laughs) By definition, a single person can't run a decentralized network, but I am one of the co-founders and and still one of the participants on the network. And, And basically what that means for me day to day is thinking through you know, new incentive designs and product development and telling our story on podcasts like this and, you know, just, just doing our best to to bring more talent and more clients onto the network to transact. And why would someone want to be a part of the network? So Braintrust is a talent network, just to zoom out for anyone who, who isn't familiar with us, which is probably a lot of people. Braintrust is a decentralized talent network that connects knowledge workers with clients that need them. And by knowledge workers, we specifically play in the kind of high tech area right now. So our talent are computer programmers, designers, product managers, architects, security professionals, basically anyone who's involved in creating software. And these folks are all over the world. We're about half U.S., half non-U.S. talent. And they serve clients. We have 2,400 or so clients, big, mostly big ones like Goldman Sachs, Nike, Nestle, Porsche, Volkswagen, Bank America, you name it. These big companies that kind of have insatiable demand for this technical talent, and they can either use them on a contract basis or or full-time. The, the, the network serves both sides. So that, that concept's not new, right? Like, you know, there's big consulting firms that do it. There's other smaller talent marketplaces that do it. What's unique about Braintrust is that it's owned and controlled by its talent. And so like, why, right? Why does that matter? Well, when your jobs marketplace is a nonprofit, essentially it's a, it's a place where it, that, that is owned by the talent who make their living on it. Those talent don't need to extract lots of value, right? So, so a corporation like a big consulting firm, like a Deloitte, you know, needs to take 
as much money as they can out of each transaction, right? They pay a developer $80 and bill them out at $160, right? That's a that's an actual example of, of rates we see. And so, you know, 50% goes to Deloitte. In, in our model, the we're, we're owned by the talent. It's a global co-op. So, so we don't, we want to, we want to maximize the amount of money we, the talent are getting. And so the network charges no fees to the, to the talent and just a flat 10% fee to clients. And so what that does is it, is it attracts the very best talent, right? Cause they're, they've got all the economic upside and wherever the talent go, the clients go. So it's just, it's sort of a, a new way of, uh, of pulling intellectual capital. So the talent gets to put more money in their pocket and they get to control other policies around the network that make it a better place for them. That's exactly right. That's where our token comes in. So we have a native token called the Brain Trust token. And you you earn the token by referring other talent, sc- helping screen those talent to make sure they're, they're high quality, referring clients. We have tens of thousands of people who have referred talent and or clients. I mean, the majority of our network is referrals. We don't, you know, we don't have this, you know, we have like only like 38 or so full-time employees. We don't have hundreds or thousands of employees. And so you get the token by mostly by referring, you can do other things too. And then you can use the token to control the roadmap, to vote on product features, to vote on business rules, right? Like, Hey, should we raise the fee from 10% or should we make it harder to be on brain trust or easier? Or, and and then we're rolling out a bunch of new functionality actually that that's uniquely enabled by the token that we can, we can talk about later. So aside from voting on the rules and a sense of belonging, why else would someone want to own the token? So there's a new, a massive new feature set of features that we've been building for over a year now that is just about to release into public beta that we're calling. It's basically a professional network. And what it does is it allows professionals to either give or get career advice. So I'll give you an example. Like, so let's say you're trying to get a job and at a drug maker, a pharma, um, and you need help negotiating the offer letter. So you want to talk to someone who's been in pharma for a long time and get some one-on-one coaching, right? Could just be a half an hour. That today, like that just doesn't exist, right? I mean, you, you can't Google that. You can you can read a generic article about negotiating offers. You can't really LinkedIn it, right? It's too public. So, so you use Brain Trust to find this person and the way you compensate this person is with the brain trust token. And how do you get the token? Well, you could go buy it, but we'd rather you refer clients and talent to the network, right? So you kind of create this virtuous cycle where folks refer their friends, their clients, maybe their employer to brain trust to start using it. They earn tokens for those very simple referrals. And then they use those tokens to advance their career. So it's a way of incentivizing mutual aid among professionals who may not know each other. Exactly right. It, it, think of it like there, there's a spectrum of career help out there and, and, and everyone needs it, right? It, everyone either needs it or is it, or it feels somewhat, somehow compelled to give it, right? So it's, it's a thing about like folks more junior in their career, like say I'm, a, I'm out of college, I'm a, a junior marketing manager, but some, someday I want to be CMO and chief marketing officer, right? And, and so, you know, I, I need, I want mentorship. I want help. Like what are the eight subway stops between where I am now and my, you know, big career goals. And that, you know, that kind of mentorship used to kind of happen around the water cooler in the office, right. Or, or, you know, hopefully you work for a good company and, you know, your manager or your manager's manager can, can kind of mentor you on the side. Well, that just doesn't exist anymore, right? Like people just aren't going to offices and, and this sort of like knowledge transfer and, and mentorship and, and, and helping, 
just isn't happening anymore. So we, when we were, we were setting out, the way we stumbled on this was we're like, Hey, we have this really fast growing labor marketplace, but we're short on labor, right? Like this is a year ago when the you know economy was booming and we had way more clients than we had talent. We're like, how do we get more talent onto brain trust? And so we, we stumbled onto this idea of a professional network and there's so much heat around this thing. There's so many younger people who want career advice and either either just one time help me negotiate this offer letter kind of thing all the way to, you know, mentor me part time or a group of folks part time. And then we also found there's a ton of people on the on the on the supply side, like, you know, folks more more senior in their career who actually want to give back and and feel compelled to you know, help younger people and share their experience with folks who really want it. And what, what we thought was interesting was people didn't really want to do this for cash. They're, they're like, oh, I feel weird, like saying I'll help you with your offer letter for $70 or whatever. But, you know, and, and then, but the, you know, we wanted some value exchange, right? So then we looked at like, oh, what if we just make a point system and, you know, point systems, like, I think they work on like Reddit and social networks and stuff, but it didn't, it didn't fit for this professional network. And so, we thought, you know, our, our brain trust token, which you can earn by building the network, right? We don't want you to go buy it. We want you to earn it by by helping us grow the network. This is a good use for that token. So you, you pay for this career advice with our token, and then that powers the leaderboard. And folks can see, you know, all publicly, like, you know, who, who, who are the most helpful people in the marketing category or the finance category or whatever. So you're paying for advice with this token, but the companies pay in dollars for the work that's getting done on the platform. Yeah, yeah, you got it, Miles. That, that's exactly right. So every time, you know, Goldman Sachs pays an invoice for developers on Brain Trust, you know, they're paying in cash. They they want to use cash. That's how the world works. The talent for the most part want to receive cash. That's how they pay their rent, etc. But the 10% fee that we collect from the client also paid in cash. That's actually sent to a smart contract, which goes out and buys brain trust tokens out of the open market and funds our DAO, basically the community treasury that will be used for further protocol development. And this DAO pays the salaries of some of the people working full-time on the network? It, it will eventually. Right now, we're using venture money for that. So, that. so that's why we raised venture money, is to basically subsidize construction and growth of the network. But but that will run out at some point, right? And so when it does run out, you know that that community that that client fee funded DAO is what will continue paying for development of the network. So what's the deal with those venture investors? Why do they want to be involved? Yeah, I think you know the, we we have a good mix of traditional VCs, like you know marketplace experts, you know like like Acme Ventures and 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 then in True Ventures and Homebrew, and then and then crypto focused investors like Pantera and Multicoin and Blockchain that you know really loved the idea of a marketplace where people make their living that is owned and controlled by the folks who make their living on it. Right. It's just like it, it's a the, the big idea here was like you know, back when I kind of wrote the plan for this in 2018 was we think user-owned networks will grow faster and become more valuable than investor-owned networks, right? It's almost like that old adage, like your margin is my opportunity. Like a user-owned network that charges de minimis fees is is the ultimate, you know, sort of disruptor economically. Right. I understand that. And there seems to be a lot of power to why people would want to refer in and want to stay in the network. But how do you get venture dollars back out to pay the LPs of those venture funds? 
Well, the ventures, the, the venture investors, I think are making a bet that based on the token economic design, and if a lot of, if this thing grows and becomes a big part of the economy, i.e. like millions of people are finding work with hundreds of thousands of clients, the way, you know, the token is designed, it could be valuable someday. And I think, you know, the, these venture investors took a real big risk, a, a big flyer on like, especially in 2018, geez, I mean, you think crypto is uncertain now you should have seen it then <laughs> you know I, I think i think the bet is that you know this thing if, if it becomes widely used you know it could be really valuable so if i'm understanding you you're saying you didn't sell equity in a company you sold tokens to these venture investors who will eventually resell those tokens should that become financially viable legally viable that's right yeah i think you've made a number of interesting design choices in setting this up you know, we've touched on the fact that customers pay in dollars, which a lot of crypto enthusiasts would naturally, I think, gravitate towards insisting people pay in crypto, but you didn't raise equity and you started more centralized. And if I understand, you're becoming more decentralized over time, which is a journey that I think a lot of folks are having challenges with. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that third point of how you go from more centralized towards your dream of being truly de decentralized. Yeah, this this is a it's a great topic. I, I mean, this is I think one of the most interesting and important topics in this space and like a, a lot of people think about this topic as like how do how do we like get around regulation or whatever? Like I, I just hate that angle to it. Like th this if if you're tr if you're setting up something to, and you're designing it to subvert regulation, like just don't do it, right? They're going to get you, right? There's, it's not, that's not worth doing with, with brain trust. First of all, on the, on the payment side, like we didn't think that the market needed another payment method, like the dollar is fine. Right. And, and if you don't like the dollar, like there's a million other ones, you know, like use euros or XRP or Bitcoin, or whatever you want. Right. But like, that's not the problem we were trying to solve. The, the problem we were trying to solve is how do we build a professional marketplace that cuts out the middleman, the middleman being you know the one who extracts more value than they provide, which is most consulting firms and most labor marketplaces. How do we cut that middleman out, build a network that is owned and controlled by the members who make their living on it? Oh, and we can also provide career advancement and like fill this massive gap in the market where people need upskilling and mentorship and, and, and career advice. How can we create a token economy that satisfies all of those constituents? And that's where our token came from. And those are the 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 uses for it, right? So so this, the token, like very importantly, like its cash value is not relevant to the network. It's it's not required. You don't need to buy the token if you're talent. You don't need to buy the token to use the network. If your clients need need to buy it, and it, you know, I mean that that's just the fee to use the system, and that turns the flywheel. And so, so that that's part one. Part two, you ask about you know progressive decentralization. So this is you know not a concept I I will take credit for. This is something that Jess, Jesse Walden Variant Ventures, one of our early investors. And I believe Chris Dixon has written, you know, pretty extensively. Those are, you know, some really smart people that we respect in the space. And basically, the concept of progressive decentralization is as follows: you, you, you want to get to product market fit. You know, ho hopefully, like you're solving a real problem with your network. You don't need to be on chain, fully decentralized for that, right? It's it's very actually it's hard to coordinate people you don't know, <laughs> and so so you start the business with people you do know and and centralized. 
and you know, you get the marketplace humming along. We, you know, we, we grew for almost two years before we decentralized and launched the token on mainnet in September of 2021. You know, we had thousands of talent serving, I don't know, a hundred or so clients and we we're using a fake token and, you know, like just seeing if people would, would refer for, you know, in exchange for this fake valueless token that would someday control the network. And fortunately, you know, we, we caught product market fit there and, and, and then we decentralized and now there's, hundreds of thousands of members contributing to the platform and, you know, dozens of, uh, of, of people that kind of do it full time. And, you know, we have this growing marketplace now sort of powered by the token and, and in the value prop is simple talent. They get to keep hundred percent of their rate. Oh, and if they get tokens, they can control the network where they make their living. Cool. Clients get unfettered, very inexpensive, transparent access to the talent they desperately need. Simple, right? And this, so it's a new business model, user-owned, empowered by a new technology, blockchain. You mentioned a couple of milestones in there about the path. You know, one is doing it with people you know with a fake token, getting product market fit, and then going live on mainnet with a real token. Are there any other key milestones that you think of in your framework towards more and more decentralization? Yeah. Great question. So I, I think you know, decentralization, it, it's a bit of a, a bit of an amorphous term, but like to me, the the bright line, and I, I don't mean bright line in the sort of legal sense, I'm not an attorney, but like I, I know that the test I've always thought is like if the core team disappears, like does can this thing still run? And and as soon as that answer is like pretty sure, yeah, you know, I, I think you're you, you can make a good argument, you're decentralized. But but then like more importantly, is this thing growing faster because it's decentralized that rather than if it were a totally centrally controlled corporation, right? And then that second one to me is the the sexy part of this industry. Like, can some can you can you do, like we always get this question? Could you do this without a token? Sure, it would just be slow grow and really unprofitable and like not that interesting and whatever. But with the token, it grows faster than we than it could. With without you know, rather than us being centralized, I'll just give you an example. Like a lot of our clients are made are referrals made by these like freelance kind of sales guys, like these people I've never met before, who simply just log on, get a unique code, start referring people within big companies that clearly need the talent on Brain Trust. And as soon as those clients start transacting on Brain Trust, the pro- protocol sends those guys tokens. Right. It's like, it's a permissionless global referral engine. So I don't have hundreds of salespeople all logged into Salesforce telling, you know, and we're all telling them what to do. We do have a few of those people for sure. Right. That's how you kind of, how you get off the ground, but you know, and then the talent side, like we have talent referring talent. That's how you get into these big pockets of, of amazing designers and developers all over the world. Right. I, I couldn't have recruited those folks myself. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how, how we think about decentralization. So you're really seeing, the power of solving the cold start problem by giving people ownership in the network, incentivizing them to bring other people into the network and generating more network effects. Exactly right. So how do you see your personal role in this? If you have more and more people coming in, you've never met, people can vote and change the rules that you originally designed. Where do you see yourself as this continues to grow? Yeah, I mean, look, I I am both talent and a client on the marketplace. I mean, I, I very much like th- this started as a passion project for me. I've been a, a web two marketplace entrepreneur my whole life. I've 
uh, had two big exits and and then a third one that you know hopefully will go public next year or whenever companies go, can go public again. And, and so this started off as a first as an investment thesis and then then as a passion project and now it's still like I, I I'm I just love like well, I built it for myself I built it for people like me so I'm a client I I have you know uh, another company that uses it to to build software that's totally unrelated to blockchain and then I'm ta- I'm a product manager on there and okay like I don't, I don't do a ton of it anymore but like I'll help other people as a product manager you know on brain trust and so so look my my, my role now is like we're we're past product market fit my my job is to like try like try to make sure we have the best people showing up and, and, and getting enthusiastic about brain trust and then referring other really high quality people. And then tell, like, just telling the story, right? Like, you know, going out and uh, on podcasts or speaking at conferences and especially with this new professional network, I mean, it, it's, it's going to launch publicly in the next, you know, maybe one or two months. Like, I think this is like what LinkedIn should have been. You know, I, I think this is like, I, I can't, I'm already like one of the you know, busiest, you know, advice contributors on this thing. Cause, cause I love doing it. You know, I, I, I just think there is the, the way information workers, knowledge workers have worked prior to like the last, you know, frankly, prior to the COVID lockdowns, like was so broken, right? Like, Tech people get warehoused in these big companies. They're not really doing anything. They're not, they have no satisfaction in their jobs. They're being, you know, if you're a consultant, you're being marked up crazy. You don't get to pick your clients. Like you have to commute to a cubicle. You have to live in a city you don't want to live in. And that's too expensive. Like it's just, it's just a bad system. Right. I just think, I just think we could do better. You know, now that we have bandwidth and zoom and Asana and Google docs and, and ubiquitous internet, like you should be able to do what you want from where you want and like keep your value, not, not pay a middleman 50%. Oh, and like get up level your career, right. You know, all within an ecosystem. And I, I just think brain trust just, just does a bunch of those things better than like corporate America circa 2005. And so like, I'm just, I'm so deeply passionate about this mission and, and so like, I'm just like, I'm an evangelist now. That's, that's my role. Well, I hear you preaching it. <laughs> now you mentioned your three marketplace businesses that you did before. I'm curious, was the lesson you drew from them that you brought forward in this? Is, is this the main one? Do web three or are there other key lessons that you brought into doing brain trust? I'll, t- I'll tell you the key lesson. And like, look, this is so many web three people are like, oh, web is dead. Let's kill it. It's anachronistic, whatever. It, it's not, right? Web two is not going to go anywhere. Web three just like makes incentive systems a little better, right? It is, and web, I, I, I love the branding of web three. It, it's very prolific. I don't know. Maybe now it's like synonymous with fraud, <laughs> unfortunately. But like, you know, it, it was so well branded, but it's, it, it's not meant to be a replacement, like Windows 2000 was a replacement for Windows 95, right? Like it, that's not how it should be viewed. It's just a better way of aligning incentives. So I'll, I'll tell you the lightning strike of how I got here. So the job of Web2 marketplace operators is to connect supply and demand, create a trusted place to transact, and then take a fee for your trouble, right? But because you're for-profit, you, you need to increase that fee, right? Your job is to, is to ever increase that rake. The problem is the better you are at increasing that rake, the more you're creating misaligned incentives between you, the marketplace owner and operator, 
and the participants, right? So, so you know, Bill Gurley in 2013 famously wrote this article called A Rake Too Far, where he was arguing basically to, you know, his portfolio, you know, open table, Yelp, et cetera. Hey guys, you charge restaurants, et cetera, fees for every transaction or every whatever, every reservation or every whatever. The, the more you charge, the more pissed they're going to be because you're driving their businesses into lower margins and you're going to, you're going to create an opportunity for disruption. Right. And so as a web two marketplace operator, my first one was an e-commerce where I was taking fees from local stores. My second one was an automotive where I was taking fees from local mechanics. Third one, doctor on a man is taking fees from, from doctors on a per transaction basis. I realized like we sit around all day trying to figure out how do we get higher fees? How do we take more of the pie? Right. And so that dirty secret is like the better you are at that, the more vulnerable you are to disruption. And so that's where I contemplate. That's when I became obsessed with smart contracts and tokenization. And I realized, oh, a tokenized network owned by its participants is better than a corporate network owned by shareholders because incentives can remain aligned through growth. And so Web3, user-owned, whatever you want to call them, tokenized, whatever, user-owned networks don't need increasing rakes to grow. And so they will, they will be, they will grow faster and be more valuable to their participants. That's the big idea here. And that that's what, what got me into, you know, what we now call web three. And so your advice for a potential marketplace founder is today you should be harnessing those incentives and being a web three marketplace. Uh, so look, great, great question. And, and, and the answer is depends on what marketplace you're in and and whether you're extracting more value than you're providing. I'll, I'll lay out the following framework, the way I think about it as an investor and as a founder. There's a spec, all Web2 marketplaces exist on a spectrum. On one far end of the spectrum, there are marketplaces that add as much or more value than they take uh, through fees. On the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, are marketplaces that extract more value than they provide. So, and then everyone's somewhere in the middle. And let me just give examples in, in my opinion of, of who these actors are on, on the, on the, on the good side, like providing more value than they extract. I would say Airbnb is there, right? Airbnb provide, it's this phenomenal consumer experience, have very high trust, you know, vetted on both, vetted the apartment, vetted the supply, vetted the demand, easy to pay insurance in case something horrible happens reputation, price discovery, like what's my loft in Venice Beach worth? I don't know. Like, but well, Airbnb does, right? There's liquidity, price discovery through liquidity. That's an amazing amount of value provided for the 20% or whatever they take, right? That's why you don't see a lot of people trying to disintermediate Airbnb. It's a very, very strong brand earning their fee. On the other side, I would put the whole gig economy, right? Like why, why should Uber take 10, 20, 30, 40% during surge from these drivers, right? It, DoorDash, same thing. You, you see restaurants taping signs in their windows saying, please call us, do not use DoorDash. DoorDash pushes us into the red, right? It, it, so it's like, look, DoorDash is a phenomenally well-run company, just incredible operations. I think it's a deeply, those gig economy companies are deeply flawed. They're, they'll even on good years, they can't produce positive gross margins and, and their cost Yelp. Another one, like your restaurants would do anything to get off Yelp. They hate it. They felt, they felt, they feel like held hostage by Yelp, right? They have to pay someone a few hundred bucks a month to have a, have their own web presence. You know, it's, it gets extortionary after a while, if you're not providing enough value. So, 
So my only, like, this is where Web3's opportunity come, comes in, right? There, there should be a tokenized Uber. There should be a tokenized Yelp. There should be a restaurant-owned delivery network or restaurant and driver-owned, right? That makes all the sense in the world. We didn't start there because that's that's too hard, right? That's like, if you're going to use a token as an incentive mechanism to build a network, you should probably start with programmers. And so we started with, you know, IT knowledge workers. So why should there be huge, you know, high, high markup consulting firms taking 50% of a Java developer's living just for making the introduction to the client and maybe doing some screening at the top, right? It makes no sense, right? So, so brain, brain trust plays in that area. So you decided to start somewhere that's a little bit easier in terms of building a marketplace here. What other decisions did you make early on learning from other people's failures or are there positive models you can look to? I know you've been a pioneer, but are there models that you do draw some inspiration or learnings from? Yeah. I mean, anyone who has figured out a referral incentive mechanism that can grow without a central authority having to put their thumb on the scale, that's inspiration to me. And so like one of them is Tesla, right? It has nothing to do with blockchain, right? But Tesla, you know, they, when you refer other Tesla owners, you earn charging miles, right? And if you do it enough, like you could earn a car. I mean, in fact, one, one of our, our, one of our growth marketing uh, or product marketers here at Brand Trust was the number two Tesla referral person in the world. And he's earned two roadsters. I can't name him because he gets so shy about it, but he's such a stud. And so like, you know, we, I'm inspired by programs that like, you don't need, you know, a hundred person marketing team in New York, you know, pushing this along and, you know, inorganically growing it. Right. It, it like find viral loops that, that can grow themselves. And, and a token is just another way of doing incentives. Right. It, I would argue like a, a token is a better loyalty point, right. Cause you can, you can cash it out easily. You know, the value can, can change on its own. You know, it, it can't be, you know, like, like United can just decide what their United miles are and Amex with their points. Right. But like, you know, if a, if a cryptocurrency is designed properly, you know, that, that can't be done. Now we've mainly been focusing on the upside, which is, you know, quite big. You also alluded to some compliance questions and I'm curious, like what is the biggest legal question or compliance risk that you think about today or previously that you solved? Yeah. Look, I, I think the, the big one here in like, there's a lot of strong criticism of the SEC here. And it's a very controversial topic here, right? And like, look, I actually don't think securities laws as they apply to tokens are ambiguous. I, I think like you have this Howey test, you know, which is like part of the 1932 Securities Act, I think or something like, and it's, it's, it's a four prong test that you have to fail one, at least one of the prongs to not be a security. So like these tokens that are just dressed up, they're, 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 they're profit return mechanisms or they're giving dividends or staking rewards or whatever you want to call it. Like, I don't know, like that, that stuff, that's problematic, right? That, that seems like you should just be an equity or your security. So you know, we, we obviously like, we don't have any of those aspects of our network. Like our, our token is meant to be an incentive system, a governance system, and then, you know, something you use to upskill your career. Right. I mean, it's just like there's a lot of reasons we think to 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 acquire this token. We don't want you to have to go buy it. We want you to refer your friends and 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 build the network. Right. It's like a it's like a virtuous cycle greased by the token. Uh, you, you know, these the other projects that are are creating clear financial instruments, but but subverting U.S. regulators. I, I don't know. I just I don't see how that ends. And and look, we have these regulations for a reason. Like. 
you know, the SEC, the, these securities laws have created the, you know, the, the strongest equity market on the planet that, you know, yeah, there's still some fraud sometimes, but like, it's a pretty safe place to play. Like, look what happens when they're not regulating, you know, you get $12 billion fraud in Nassau, you know, and millions of people lose money. So it's, um, I don't know. I just don't think it's as ambiguous as people say. So for a venture investor buying a token early on in a network like this, how does the Howey test apply in that case? Well, they should do the research and make sure what they're buying is not an unregistered security. And if you had a magic wand, what regulatory changes would you want to make? You know, you know what I would. What I'm a big fan of is um, there's this woman called Hester Peirce who was a. I, I believe she's she's still one of the commissioners at the SEC. Just just a like a really thoughtful person. She proposed this safe harbor rule where she basically said, look, a project, you know, can have like, you know, two years of safe harbor, whatever it is to like really get their bearings and, and experiment and try new things. And like, you know, and, and not be subject to, you know, SEC enforcement action. And, and if, if you can figure it out in two years and then decentralize, you're good. And if you can't, well, your price security, you should probably come register like that to me like that, I think that would create this, that would foment innovation in the United States. And it would stop the people from having to like go offshore, go to Singapore or Malta or or the Bahamas. I don't know if there anyone's going there anymore, but you know what I mean? Like, look, this blockchain ecosystem is not going anywhere. Like the, the future financial system will be built on these blocks and it's America's game to lose. And it, it, it's just, it's, it's so dumb to think, you know, we, we would throw the baby out with the bathwater here. So, you know, I, I, I would, I would have our regime again. I don't think it, our regime's ambiguous. I just think it could be a little friendlier, I think, to experimentation. So I think if I'm understanding what you're saying, something like Ethereum, people have argued maybe was a security in the beginning is clearly not now. If it could make that transition in two years, then you wouldn't have a problem. Yeah, look, I, I think people, I think the SEC has even said, if this thing had been built in the United States, we probably would have enforced on him, right? He's Canadian, Russian, whatever. And, you know, now it, it is provably decentralized, right? I mean, you know, Vital could disappear tomorrow and nobody would blink, right? I mean, it is a tremendously, you know, decentralized and, and robust network. It's It's so incredible what Ethereum has become. But like, yeah, I mean, it's sad. To, it's sad to hear an American regulator say if he, if he developed that here, we would have enforced on him. Like, I'm sure glad Larry and Sergey didn't, th- you know, have to worry about that when they built, you know, the most important company on the planet in in Mountain View. You know what I mean? Right. You're saying we're missing out on the future being built in the U.S., which is something maybe we've gotten too used to. We we could be right. I, I don't I don't think it's game over. I, I just think, you know, I, 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 I'm not anti-regulator by any means. Like, I, I think they are, I think their heart is mostly in the right place and they really are trying to protect consumers most of the time and investors. And God knows they, we need it. <laughs> I mean, if you look at this FTX thing, um, I, I just think, I just think we could tack a couple degrees in the direction of being friendlier to innovation. Now, changing topics a little bit, you're a prolific angel investor yourself. And I'm curious, what do you notice in working with other founders that that they don't understand about pitching investors? Like, what are the common mistakes? Huh. Good question. Um, you know, like I'm not. So I'm, I don't manage other people's money. I just invest for myself. So my 
you know, my, my level, uh, I, I'm not as, I'm not seeing the same pitches VCs are. I'm, and I'm only really only seed stage. So I'm evaluating founders on their passion around the problem they're solving and their, in their ability to tell the story in a coherent and passionate way. And that's always how I've been. Right. So I, it's a, it's very easy for me. Like if I see myself in them and I, and I don't mean demographically, right? <laughs> I mean, passion, like, I don't care who's with me. I'm building this no matter what, like that, that sort of like, I'm doing this or I'm going to die trying kind of dedication that that's what I look for. If you're, if you're pitching something that's like too short-sighted, like it feels like a feature, it's just a hard pass, right? And no VC is going to go for that. Or if you're pitching something that's purely trend, like the latest NFT gimmick or whatever, like VCs aren't going to go for that. You, you got to be, t- you, you have to be telling a big, powerful story, you know? And, and it's like, there's the disconnect is like with, with founders, it, it's, it's the art of the possible, right? Like what if this could exist? How cool would that be? With VCs, it's the art of the probable, right? Like how, how many bets do I need to make and what do they need to look like for me to return the fund and hopefully raise the next one, right? And so there's a, there's a little bit of misalignment there. Have you learned things in angel investing that have informed your own work as a founder? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, ways, like, so it's all storytelling, right? Like it, it, it's it, being a, a founder, it's half storytelling, half execution. You can outsource the execution part. You can't outsource the storytelling part. And so- I, I, I've always sort of naturally been good at that, but but I've seen other founders in the ways they tell their stories has made me better. Being an element, I'm an LP in a dozen venture funds, so I get their pitch. Like I get to see how VCs talk to their investors. That has made me a much stronger founder, right? If you can if you can get a seat at all sides of the table, it actually makes the game much easier to play. Ooh, say more about that. So anything you could offer as learnings for our listeners around how VCs communicate to their LPs and what implications that has as a founder. Yeah. So this is a little inside baseball here, but you know, LPs are generally looking, they're, they're, they're portfolio managers, right? They're, they're looking to outperform the market. They're looking for alpha. They're looking for managers who can outperform whatever the benchmark is. And in the crypto, it's the benchmarks holding, holding uh, Bitcoin in the securities world, you know, private company, public company world, the benchmarks, the S and P, and then, and so they're looking, you know, and it's, there's the alpha is very scarce and it's a very manager driven. The firm is almost irrelevant anymore, right? It's, it's really about the managers and, and the category spread. And are you a generalist or a specialist and blah, blah, blah. So, so, so VCs end up pitching LPs as to what their edge is like, Hey, I am dialed into this. I know this tech better than anyone, or I have this prolific network and we'll get better deal flow than the next guy or whatever, 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 right? And so th- that's interesting. Like, and I'm an LP, right? I, I manage my own family capital. And like, so I hear these pitches from them and I understand that. So, so it made me a little bit better on the storytelling side for brain trust, right? It was like, you know, you, you have to, you know, you have to tell a story that like, hey, when this works, not if, this will change the world. This will change the way knowledge workers get paid and manage and control the networks where they make a living. That's a big idea, right? It's a trillion dollar idea. So how do you get better at storytelling? Keep doing it over and over. That's why I like doing these podcasts. I get to try like some of the things I said on this podcast, I've never said before, or I've just said them in a different way. And so you get you get to kind of hear yourself say it out loud, almost like a stand-up comedian sits in, in little clubs and tries out new material. And 
and you, you know you get an emotional reaction from it. Unfortunately, I don't have an audience and I can't see you, so <laughs> I don't know how it's landing. But but I but I have an emotional reaction to myself, and uh, and so it's it's just pure brute force, right? Like we we did our seed round back in 2018. We did I think we did 120 pitches, you know, 85 no's. And you might look at that on its face and say, what a waste of time. It wasn't. It was an incredible use of time, right? Like we got, I got to see what 120 professional investors, asterisks, most of them shouldn't be professional investors to be, to be honest, but you know, they were technically managing someone else's money. I got to see their reaction to my story 120 times. How much better was I at the 120th than I was on the first? A lot better. And what, is it, what does that do for you? Well, it informs your sales pitch, informs your marketing copy, informs your way of recruiting employees. I was so much sharper on 120 than I was at one. It was so valuable. And all it cost me was the time, right? So practicing over and over again, the people that we think of as great presenters often practice a tremendous amount. And you think of comedy, you alluded to comedy, you think of that as a spontaneous thing that they're performing just now, came up with these jokes, most Often those are extremely well-practiced jokes. No, and it's iterative, right? If you can't just do the same pitch 120 times. You have to, it has to be, you're on your 120th variant, right? I mean, this is why Jay Leno, the one of the greats who's, you know, 70 something years old is down in Hermosa every Saturday at the Comedy Magic Club with a notebook in his hand, right? He tries new stuff. If we laugh, he writes it down. If we don't, he, you know, like it's iterative. You know, you mentioned 85 investors said no. I... I like this mental model I've heard from some folks that unless you've gotten turned down a hundred times, you haven't, you haven't even started, you know, like you're, you're nowhere near done with your seed raise. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I would have rather gotten it done with half those numbers to be honest. <laughs> it's, it's not necessarily a badge of honor, but it, look, it, it should, what it does is it, it does make you better at storytelling it, and it, and it, proves your perseverance and your dedication to the mission. It's grueling. And this is before COVID. Like I had to drive down to fucking Sand Hill for all of these things. Yeah. Look, if you do four meetings, look, if, if you're not Elon Musk or Reed Hoffman, if you're just kind of a regular entrepreneur and you do four meetings and you get four yeses, you might be in a group think zone, right? You might be like, Hey, this is chat GPT for sales copy. Right. It's like, oh, that's obvious to everyone, which probably means it's not going to work. Meaning it's so obvious there'll be a lot of competition. Meaning it's so obvious that it, it already exists probably, or like, yeah. or a big company is about to roll it out in two seconds and you're going to get steamrolled. Things that are too obvious. I don't know. Maybe this is contrarian to me. This could be wrong, but like, I, I think things that are too obvious aren't worth doing. So how do you think about competition early on when you're starting a business? You don't like if, if you're thinking like you, you, startups don't die from competition. Startups die from not achieving product market fit quickly enough, period. Right. Like if you get product market fit, you're going to figure it out. Most people don't. So as long as you're making something that people want, the rest will get sorted out. What, what do you think about team dynamic issues? The smaller, the better. Yeah. We, we have. So I've learned this lesson the hard way. I firmly believe that once you cross, say, 50 people, you slow down sometimes by an order of magnitude. And once you get too much hierarchy and levels of bureaucracy and process and blah, blah, blah. And look, past 50, you kind of have to, right? You got to have an HR department. You got to do this and that. It, you just slow down. And it's just, it's, it's, it's painful. And so I have always, now we're decentralized network, right? So we, we have, my core team is pretty small. There's lots of other core teams doing their thing. 
engineering teams. That, uh, these are teams that I don't control. Right? We all coordinate around a common goal of growing brain trust. And, you know, we all have tokens, but I don't have to manage them, right? So I've always been dogmatic around keeping under 50. And decentralization helps you do that. And de Decentralization with a good incentive system. I'm reminded of the classic theory of the firm that by reducing transaction costs, you can have smaller groups coordinating. And you're saying not just reducing transaction costs we've been doing for a while, but also aligning incentives is really important. 100%. I mean, look, the, the, the inventors of this new incentive system are Bitcoin and Ethereum. Think about those. In, and let's just talk about Ethereum, right? I, I think Bitcoin's block rewards asymptotically approach zero. And then, then who knows what happens, right? But like with Ethereum, you know, it's like you can fire up a node, a validator and be paid for it. And it, the currency is actually deflationary now, thanks to EIP 1559, that there's you know, more ETH burned than minted. And you don't need permission. You don't need Vitalik's permission to run a node. Like it's a lot harder to be a Solana node, right? It's, just, it's, it's not, you know, not really super decentralized, but you know, Vitalik designed a system that anyone can play and, and most of them can play profitably. And, and that secures the network, right? The, the more nodes there are, the more secure and valuable Ethereum is as a, as a global compute platform. That's amazing, right? That's what inspired us. At Brain Trust is like, hey, let's let's build a decentralized referral engine where like anyone can play without permission, and like we can grow the network. And as long as we in, enforce like community, you know, quality standards, and and like you know, we know we we test everybody, we know who they, they say who they are, and they, they their skills are tested, all this stuff. But like, what what a, what a powerful way, you know, a, a decentralized network could grow so much bigger and faster than like a centralized staffing firm. Well, thank you for all the inspirational storytelling and the advice for founders. I really appreciate it. Where can people follow up and find out more online? Yeah, sure. We're just at braintrust.com. And then I'm, I'm on Twitter at Adam Jackson SF. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Miles. I really enjoyed the conversation. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast player. And please give us a rating and review. Startups for Good is brought to you by Purpose Built, a venture studio focused on human potential. If you're inspired today and want to reach out, please visit our website, purposebuilt.vc. Thank you.